0: Welcome to UO today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Jordan D. Schnitzer, president of Schnitzer Properties and director of the Jordan Schnitzer Family Foundation. Schnitzer began collecting contemporary prints and multiples in 1988. Today, the collection exceeds 20,000 works and includes many of today's most important contemporary artists. It has grown to be the country's largest private print collection. He and his family foundation generously lend work from the collections to qualified institutions and have organized over 160 exhibitions at over 120 museums across the country. Schnitzer earned his BA at the University of Oregon in 1973 and he became a board member of UO's Art Museum in 1978. In the 1980s, he was the major donor for the renovation and expansion of the museum, which reopened in 2005 as the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art. Today we are in the Coeta and Donald Barker Gallery with a new exhibition, Strange Weather, from the collections of Jordan D. Schnitzer and his family foundation, which is on view through April 7th, 2024. Thanks, Jordan, so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Glad to be here. And thank you for sharing uh, this tiny bit of your gigantic collection with us. It's an incredible thing. So um, what led to your interest in collecting art and particularly the art of um, contemporary prints all goes back to my mother like most things in life
1: right so when I was a first grader at Ainsworth grade school my mother enrolled in the Portland Art Museum Art School now called Pacific Northwest College of Art so that opened the door to the arts for our family three years later at the urging of the teachers who were the major artists in Portland there are not many communities where artists can really survive by just selling their art so they're generally art teachers Louis Bunce, Mike Rousseau, Carl Morris, all artists who were in the collection of the Jordan Stitzer Museum of Art at the University of Oregon, convinced her to open the first contemporary art gallery in Portland. So she, along with her mother, my grandmother, Helen Director, opened the Fountain Gallery of Art. And uh, I was in the third grade, and and she ran that for 25 years. So like many people in our audience, I had a working mother, she'd fly out of the house for my father was building our real estate business that I've worked in since I was 14. And uh, so once that art door was opened, it has never been shut, and uh, I sort of took off like a rocket. Uh, As to the Prince, um, in the late 80s she decided to retire and turn the gallery over to a woman, Laura Rousseau, and the gallery continues as the Rousseau Lee Gallery. And she spent more time with my father who was retiring as I was sort of ascending in the real estate business. And I came up from an exhibition at the Portland Art Museum on whose board I was on, and there were prints and multiples of what we'll call the New York School. Jasper Johns and Ellsworth Kelly and Frankenthaler. And and I thought, you know, I want to stay committed to Art of Our Region. Even though now I have this large collection of the best and biggest of the American artists, I always talk about the importance of supporting supporting local artists. So I thought I want to stay committed to buying art of the region, but this might be fun. And I started buying prints and multiples uh, from a gallery in downtown Portland, the Augan Gallery, Bob Cox,
0: and I just uh, enjoyed it a lot. So you spoke about your mother's role in, in this uh, career that you've chosen as a collector. Um, among the many other gifts that your parents uh, give, gave to you is the gift of giving. So. Why is philanthropy such an important thing for you to do? Why is that a good thing to do? Tell us about that.
1: The simple answer is is because it makes you feel good. And, you know, um, I say that with a smile, but I've thought about that question a lot. I remember Lincoln High School in Portland had a speaker series. and Maybe eight or ten years ago they asked me to come talk. And they said, well, what was it like growing up in this wealthy, politically important family. I said, wait a second here. When I was growing up, we lived a very comfortable, upper middle class life, but uh, there weren't the resources that we had later. I remember a number of Sundays, once a month, my mother would do the bills and she'd say, Harold, I need X amount of money. And she'd say, honey, I don't have that much cash. And she'd say, I'll stretch out those bills. But they always devoted time to various boards. As the business succeeded, uh, there were more funds available and we started making larger philanthropic gifts and in 1998 created the Harold and Arlene Schnitzer Care Foundation and the Jordan Schnitzer Family Foundation. I think probably since that time we've uh, donated probably I think around $250 million. So awfully proud of that. But why? In life, you need to work, because we like to eat. And in most places, you need to wear clothes. And then you have kids. Often you want to take care of them. And you need to protect yourself for emergencies, and health care, and other issues, and so forth. And yet, if you look at what drives us as human beings, <laughs> uh, There are fundamental needs we have, and needs also of doing things that make us feel good. And the irony is, in my case, the more we've done philanthropically, the better the business is done. And furthermore, when you help others, just as each of us in our lives were helped by somebody, whether someone influenced you to become the amazing professional you've become, Someone that reached out and gave us a hand or talked to us about what they did or whatever. And therefore, when you do that, there's something that just makes you feel good inside. In the end, we all wanna feel good about ourselves. And so the irony from that quick answer I gave you is, one of the fastest ways to feel good about yourself is doing something for others.
0: It's really that simple. So you mentioned the establishment of the Jordan Schnitzer Family Foundation. What kind of projects does the foundation fund?
1: Well, in the range of what the family has done, and my mother died three years ago, my father 11 years ago, is there a number of programs that we're known for and many that are confidential people don't know about. Uh, So often we're told, well gee, at this point there's a fair amount of credibility with the Schnitzer name and if you're involved with this, it'll give other people a sense that it's a good philanthropic effort to help a relief nursery, an art project, a children's nursery, a, a Forward Stride, a, Autistic Kids on Horses, whatever the hundreds of things we've supported. Um, in terms of uh, when I took over the Family Foundation about 10 years ago, my mother was starting to get a little ill. Uh, we were supporting 250, not smaller organizations, but smaller contributions of 1000 to five or $10,000, and then some fewer bigger things. And, um, you know, when you're lucky enough to be in a position to give some money away, and that's whether it's a dollar or a zero or two after it, um, first of all, no one can give your money away better than you. Whatever you want to give it to. Sierra Club, conservative thing, church, religion, whatever it is. If you ask me to give your money away, then I have to say, would you like health care, children, education, resources, scholarship? Guide me. Well, when you build up a little more money, uh, you start being (laughs) hit up by awful lots of organizations. And once you give to one, they come back every year. So I shifted a bit the way we used to work to the way we work now, which is working on fewer, bigger things, and yet building some programmatic things that we're known for. Of the current programs that I'm so proud of, one is called CommuniCare. And my parents had started this, of helping high school students learn to become. grant makers and learn about needs in their community. So when I took over 10 years ago, we had 47 students in four high schools, but now last year we finished with 1700 students in 60 high schools. And what we do first is ask them to pick a theme, which is usually homeless youth, environment, vets, seniors, um, and then we, it's either an in-school program or a club program. We ask them to raise 1500 bucks. It's the first time they've gotten together collegially and figured out how to raise money, whether it's roses on Valentine's Day, uh, car washes, bake sales, whatever. Then we give them $15,000. They make their own site visits and then give out last year a million dollars to 118 organizations. That's one I'm real proud of programmatically. We have one more I'll talk about, care to share. No one knows about this one. The social workers at Oregon Health Sciences hospitals came to us. Someone's in the hospital needs to stay another week. They have no money. Uh, we provide money for rent, wheelchairs, prosthesis, dental work. That's about 350000 a year. And the recipients never know the money comes from us. We never know who the recipients are. We get a list of what the money goes for. And that's really uh, very,
0: very satisfying. So let's start talking about... Um your collection and uh, this exhibit. So first, how many artists are represented in your collection? Uh, approximately 1,500. How long has, has, has it taken you to collect?
1: Well, I started when I was 14. I bought the first little work called Sanctuary by Louis Bunce, it was $75. And with a family discount, it was $60. I paid $5 a month out of my allowance. And as I've suggested, if I missed a payment, uh, my mother knew where to foreclose because my bedroom was next to theirs. But I still have that work with me. It was with me when I came down to University of Oregon. It's with me
0: every day and uh, I treasure it. Um, so, when I introduced you, I said you're, it's the, co- the, the largest collection of prints and multiples. What are multiples?
1: Well, uh, multiples are works that, uh, like prints, are made in an edition where there's many of them so that a broader group of collectors can have the work we have 5,000 paintings and sculptures, 12, 15,000 prints. We have 500 pieces of glass. My mother had Dale Chuli's first exhibition. We have probably 600 pieces of Native American art, uh, Pacific Coast uh, uh, sculptures, uh, uh, Navajo, we have,
0: uh, we have a lot of, of, of tribal art also. So you just mentioned um, the significant amount of uh, work by Native American artists. You also have more recently been collecting uh, the work of many artists of color and women. Why is that something that's become important for you?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, if you uh, look at the collection, I think it looks sort of like a dumbbell, whether this will ultimately reflect its collector, time will tell. <laughs> so the first part of the collection is really the master artists uh, post-World War II. So Jasper Johns, Ellsworth Kelly, Rauschenberg, uh, Jim Dine, Motherwell, Frankenthaler, uh, Warhol, on, and on. on. Why that work? Because that's work of our time, those of us that were born after World War II. Why art? What I've said about artists is they're always chroniclers of our time. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about Egyptian artists, Mayan artists, Chinese, caves in France. So the artists post-World War II America are focusing on themes of consumerism, materialism. Uh, The biggest change when I give that talk is really the advent of television. While there were movies in the early part of the century, there were newspapers from the 1800s on, nothing created the kind of merchandising ability of a TV screen showing you someone that's driving a Bel Air Chevrolet or Clairol hair products or smoked Marlboro cigarettes. So these artists had to deal with how does the individual deal with their sense of self when they're being bombarded with clever messages. I've always said I wish Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein and others were here today to tell us how to deal with our smartphones. <laughs> if they think there were issues there about merchandising. <laughs> the second part of the exhibition really is the artists working today. Hank Willis Thomas, uh, Leonardo de Drew, of Wiley, Allison Saar, a number of the artists in this exhibition here today. They are artists of color, women, Asian artists, Hispanic artists, why them? Well, I collect white, men and women artists today too, but I think some of the best work is being done by artists of color. Why is that? I think first to be on these walls, someone has to have a genetic predisposition to an aesthetic. Everyone listening to this took art in grade school and high school. We're all artists. But to move on up to this level, you've got to have this aesthetic sense that's greater than most of us. Second, you've got to have a message that you want to get out so badly, you're willing to rip open your guts and say, look at my art, my sculpture, painting, whatever. And third, you've got to do it in a different way. This Leonardo Drew worked behind us, nothing else like it, okay? There were artists like Louise Nevelson who worked in wood, others from Time Memorial, but he has his own brand. And uh, so the artists today, why artists of color, women, Asian, because for too many decades. They were shunned away. They were demeaned. They were blackballed and blacklisted. You didn't see their work. Uh, It's wonderful today having uh, a number of the artists of color and folks of color come up to me and said, you know, when I was a little boy growing up in Oakland, my mother would take me to the Oakland Art Museum. But the only people I saw that looked like me were in the background or subservient. You're showing work that's focusing of artists of color like Kinda Wiley, uh, others in, in that is the focus of the work. He said, do you know what that's like to see someone who looks like me? So I think the reason why the artists today, the, some of the best artists are artists of color is they're given a chance. I'm sure there were artists just as good as the ones today in the past, but they weren't allowed to come into the walls of this museum and others around the country. And I'm so proud that we've had more exhibitions of artists of color, women, Asians, than any other institution in the country. And I'm certainly not comparing ourselves to MoMA and Lackman, Chicago Institute, Art, all those giant places. They have a different mission. Ours is to be here, getting this work to less served communities, universities, smaller communities, big cities too. And I take great joy uh, from being the facilitator because this is all about the art and the audience. And I'm just the, the, the janitor helping get the art out of the warehouse and get it down here and let the curators put it up on the walls.
0: So let's talk about the show that's here at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum that's opening tonight, um, Strange Weather. Tell us something about that show and the work that's in it. Uh, this was started by uh, uh, the
1: uh, uh, curators and directors of the University of California, Santa Cruz. And um, the way these things happen is they hear about us, we're pretty well known now in the art world, and they'll call us up and say, gee, we'd love to have an exhibition from your collection. And I'll say, yes ma'am, yes sir, we're there to serve you. What would you like? In this case, she came on up, went through the binders and the art, and came up with this thing, strange weather. And I think what was in her mind then, Robin, she wanted to do work that talked about climate change, ethnic gender relationships, um, how that's all sort of a collision of themes of our time now. And uh, we went down several months later to uh, the museum in in Santa Cruz and saw it. And this is the fourth venue. And and walking in today, I am blown away and want to give a real thanks to John Weber and the team here that uh, did a spectacular job. the way they curated the work, meaning the way they arranged it on these walls. Uh, I'm not sure the work behind us of Leonardo Drew, who, as you may have heard, I called a few minutes ago and did FaceTime and showed him this. Uh, I don't know that this work has ever been shown better than the clever way they've done this in sort of almost a three-dimensional way. Uh, I walked in and my knees just started (laughs) Buckling.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there anything else you can tell us about this amazing work? Just you were describing to me how, for example, it gets transported or how it gets insured.
1: Well, first of all, um, let me talk generally about art for a second. Mm-hmm. Because I've had people come to me a million times and say, Ugh, that abstract art. Why can't they just do a nice picture <laughs> of bowls of fruit and portraits or a nice beach scene? And I'll say, Hold on. Leonardo drew like every artist in this exhibition went to art school most of them got an MFA They painted plenty of bowls of fruit and plenty of plenty of portraits, okay? But as I suggest to you artists are chroniclers of their time They've got to have a burning message and they got to do it in a different way So if this looked like van Gogh, we've already had a van Gogh if this looked like Rothko or whoever you want to pick So what has he done? Well? I've also said you don't need to know anything about an artist. And I've also said to people, you know, it's interesting about visual arts. If we talk about food, I'm sure we've all gone to a restaurant and tasted some new creation and thought, wow, is this good? (laughs) Now, unless you're a cook, you probably don't sit there and say, well, what were the ingredients and what was the temperature and how was it mixed or whatever? Music, we hear a new song, we get into the vibe. Unless you're a musician, you don't think about, well, how is it mixed and what, okay. But with art, visual things, we're so used to understanding everything instantly that they see abstract art like much of this art here. They get really frustrated, what's it mean? And what I say is first, slow down. Stop thinking, just start feeling. When you look at Leonardo Drew's work, what you see is an explosion. Now what anyone sees in this is this deconstruction reconstruction. Is it breaking apart? Is this talking about society today? Are we made up of all these little parts? Is this the world order right now? Gosh, look at what's happening today in China and Israel and whatever. So the one thing about art that's amazing is whatever anyone sees when they walk in here, no one else can say that's not right for them. That's why art is so important. Now about Leonardo Drew, I've said you don't to know anything about him. On the other hand, <laughs> when you learn a little bit about the artist, just like when I was going to school here and my English classes in PLC 180 across the quad here, and Clark Griffith would talk about Hemingway and Fitzgerald and I'd read those books and thought I knew everything about it. And he'd start talking i think, did I even read the same book? Because what he did that he was supposed to do is he took us through layer and layer and layer of those novels. Well, in terms of Leonardo Drew, born in Florida, moved as a young boy to Bridgeport, Connecticut. Poor family, lived in the projects. Across the project, the field was a junkyard. So what did he play with when he was growing up? A bunch of just stuff in the junkyard. He gets into art early, and by the time he was 12 and 13, he was a masterful artist doing cartoon-like characters. DC Comics and Marvel wanted to hire him at 13 to do comics. He said no, goes to art school, and starts beginning his career making the amazing art that he makes. When you look at this, you think this is all found objects like he grew up with in the junkyard. But no, he takes new materials and makes it look old. Uh, and. Um, Interesting in talking to him, some artists like Ellsworth Kelly, when you'd go see his studio, and I have pictures of it, he would mathematically work out the angles, the dimensions, everything about his work before he did it. Roy Lichtenstein, the same thing. Leonardo takes a different approach. Loves to travel, and he says he goes into his studio, and art just happens. He doesn't have a plan, he just starts making
0: stuff and we're the beneficiary. Fascinating. So um, concurrent with the Strange Weather exhibition is Glenn Ligon from the collections of Jordan D- Schnitzer and his family foundation, which is downstairs in the artist project space. Tell us a little bit about that, that show.
1: It was interesting they picked this group show and then a single show of Glenn Ligon's work. Glenn like, oh, a dozen other artists of color uh, is top of the heap in looking at uh, uh, ethnic, gender, geographical issues and he does it in sort of a mystical way, these numbers, uh, these other kinds of book-like images. Um, he is very erudite and in a way like Jasper John's that's more subtle in terms of how he takes you on his journey, um, uh brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, so it's a whole, different, a whole different kind of work than Leonardo's or the other people in this exhibition. Uh, so when you see that work, first just look at it, ponder it, puzzle, like it, don't like it, then begin to read about some of the notes about the work and so forth. And it will help you uncover uh, what his messages are in different ways. The fact they've done a little mini group show of his work I think is important. For many of us who aren't art history majors, uh, the group shows are fabulous, but the retrospective shows are incredible because I think it lets people like me and others see early work of an artist and go through their career and see how they've evolved and how they've dealt with changing themes in their life.
0: So uh, we're in the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art at the University of Oregon, but there are two other Jordan Schnitzer Museums of Art. Um, tell us where they are, and tell us why you wanted to help make those as well.
1: When I finished at University of Oregon in 1973, I wanted to stay on and get a master's in English for one year. My parents thought I should go to law school. Frankly, only child, I wasn't maybe, uh, the individuation process wasn't as strong. Yes, they said they'd pay for it. So I went to law school Lewis and Clark still wished I'd been here. Uh, But I finished and uh, started uh, working. And right away, I was visited by a woman, Hope Pressman. And she's one of those people that if any of us is lucky enough in life to have someone that we put on a pedestal and wish we had more of their qualities. I had met her when I had offered to redo the PLC Plaza. And I met with Dr. Robert Clark, the first president of the university I'd ever met with. And he said, we just created a University of Oregon foundation and one of our new employees is Hope Pressman. His husband Chuck was a stockbroker. She'd gone to school here. And we developed a lifelong relationship that uh, was so meaningful to me. So she came up and said, we've just created a University of Oregon Museum of Art Council with people from around the state to help promote the wonderful museum here. And i joined anything to get some board experience. And I met wonderful people from Le Grand, Klamath Falls, Astoria, Pendleton, all over the first board I went on and learned to love this museum. I had visited the museum a couple times when I was at school here, but it was only open a day or two a week, and it wasn't a very inviting place. That began the relationship with this museum. I was then involved with the expansion to put an elevator in to help handicapped people access the museum, and then started working on expanding it. Uh, we were fortunate to do that years later and had a wonderful opening and proud of that but during that time i realized that not everyone was lucky as me having a mother that opened the door to art and had art in our house and so many people students when i was here have you been to the art museum no and what i so realized is for so many people unfortunately art museums are for some elitist few not for them I wanted to shake that theme and say, that's not true. It's for you. It's for everyone. So the reason why I funded three university museums, and we're working on a fourth, is because it's one of the last times when younger people are relatively contained. And if we can just get them to walk in the front door and see this stuff, they don't have to like everything. If they like something, that's a step forward. And if they realize it doesn't hurt to come to a museum, then maybe, just maybe, when they go back to Astoria, San Jose, uh, Chicago, wherever they all go, they'll realize that was pretty neat going in that building. Let's go to a museum in our city. So uh, it's been a very important part of my philanthropy, and I hope that I'm able to continue uh, being able to fund some more university museums.
0: So Jordan, we're almost out of time, this is my last question. Why is art important in society? Why why is this such an important thing that you help to support?
1: I think there are two two reasons. Um, First is, um, I think we all end up as human beings (laughs) reacting to things. You stereotype, you make assumptions and presumptions about others. It just happens. Whether that's in conflict with the values that we say we have, I think it often is. And life is a constant journey of making sure we're living the life in terms of our values that we want to live. Therefore, art is like sitting down, uh, maybe hearing a, a pastor, a priest, or a rabbi give a talk in a sermon in a, in a house of worship. Uh, this gets us to face ourselves and the art in this exhibition and make us think about the values, the message these artists are, the, vo- the voice of these artists to us. That's important for our sense of self. The second is an indulgent one. Okay? And, and maybe not so indulgent, that is that it's nice to get away from ourselves and, and go back and be excited Frustrated, taken on the art journey each one of these artists has created and know that somehow forever we're changed in some way that's conscious or unconscious. You know, I've been asked to go speak at a number of wealth conferences. I'll sit there and I'll say to these parents and grandparents, when you're lucky enough to have created some resources, you work with wonderful attorneys and wealth management advisors about setting up a trust for your kids or a scholarship fund or something or whatever. In the end, each of us, and those of us that are parents especially, we wish we had a wand to wave so our kids would not go through all the ups and downs we've gone through. I remember my 20s when I finished here, started working. I had the normal issues, a girlfriend, a job, parents, whatever. I thought, I just get these problems figured out. life will be a dream, right? Wait a sec, a few more problems came, and a few more. And like most of us that are older, we probably said, hey, this isn't like it was advertised. Wait a second here. (laughs) So I've said to these folks, in the end, you can set up all the state planning you want, but the greatest gift I think you can give your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, neighbor kids, yourself, is a passion for the arts. Because when you have those life issues and those crises we all have, and you're grappling with how to deal with that issue that's, if you go to an art gallery, go to a museum, see art on a public street, maybe, just maybe, that takes you away from yourself a little bit and lets your heart, soul, and mind wander off then maybe when you go back to that issue you'll be refreshed and have a better perspective on how to deal with that issue. So those are my my beliefs about why art is important And my plea to everyone that's listening to this, that in terms of being here in Eugene right now, a lot of people went through a lot of work to get this exhibition up. And it is spectacularly done. And the only shame is that in April when this closes, that every single student on campus, every professor and teacher, every staff worker, janitors, groundskeepers, whatever, every citizen in this community doesn't come in these hollow doors and see this amazing work.
0: Well, Jordan Schnitzer, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for your inspiring words and especially for sharing this incredible collection so many times with so many people in this state and around the country for the very reasons that you say. It's been great talking to you. We're honored to do it. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Jordan D. Schnitzer, president of Schnitzer Properties and director of the Jordan Schnitzer Family Foundation. Strange Weather from the collections of Jordan D. Schnitzer and his Family Foundation and Glenn Ligon from the collections of Jordan D. Schnitzer and his family foundation are on view at U of O's Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art through April 7th, 2024. Thanks so much for watching.